So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If Christ is in you, the spirit is in your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters and siblings, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters and children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao MKE Church. We've come to our final week in the series, Not Your Abomination, where we've been unpacking a lot of the scriptures that are used to hurt, harm, exclude, um, and just generally hate on LGBTQ people from the church. Now, we've done a lot of debunking. We started with saying, hey, you know what, maybe this isn't the way we want to read our Bible in the first place, and creating a different lens of how we want to incorporate um, scripture into our lives, into our faith, how we want to approach the text with respect and admiration rather than kind of isolating these verses and using them to clobber the beloved children of God. We also then <coughs> spent a couple weeks on some classic important stories. Adam and Eve um, and the creation stories are really, really beautiful. Um, I actually think that though those have been used to harm queer people, there's a lot in there that can be used to affirm queer people. We've debunked the myths around Sodom and Gomorrah. That one was a tough sermon, but if you missed it and you really want to know what that passage was actually about, check that one out. And last week, we did the kind of lightning round drive-by all of the remaining five verses that are taken out of context, what they truly mean in context, and why they've been misappropriated to harm queer people. So now we've gotten to the end, and... This last question is, what if we're wrong? Now, the reason we ask this is because I think there are a lot of us, even with all of those facts in front of us, that feel doubt, feel tension in our spirits. What if we're wrong? What if the haters who are so sure of themselves have been right all along? And I'm going to spoil the ending for you. The promise is that even if and when we are wrong about anything, God's grace is enough to cover us, to welcome us, to bring us into the fold of God's goodness. Not only as, um, as beloved creatures in God's creation, but also as children adopted into God's family. And this is what this text from Romans is all about. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's got a lot of weird anti-body stuff. That's just kind of the way he talks. Paul's got some baggage too. Um, but the important part here is Paul's articulation that if the spirit who raised Jesus is alive in you, which we know from that first creation story, it is because that is the very breath you breathe, then 
that will give life to your human body. That our bodies, which feel against us, can be, uh, we can die to them, but be raised anew with a holier, fuller self. And that when the Spirit lives in you, you are a child of the Most High God. And I want you to hold in your heart, as we encounter today's teachings, that that passage, that excerpt from this broader passage in Romans where it says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back into fear. You received a spirit that shows you you are the adopted children of God. And in that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. So will you pray with me just to set us off on the right track today? Abba, Father, parent of us all, we thank you for adopting us into your family and calling us holy and beloved and good. God, we are nervous. We want to do right by you. And God, we are scared because the world around us has told us that if we don't abide by very strict and contradictory rules, that we will fall out of your grace. Thank you for this scripture that reminds us that your grace lives in our very bodies and breaths. And God, may your spirit be enough to lift us out of that fear and to bring us into wholeness, to snuggle into your arms, your cosmic arms as our parent, and know that we are loved in our fullness. Amen. Y'all, we are not to live in fear. And yet, so many of us have been terrorized by those who would tell us that we can and do fall out of God's grace simply for being who we are. So one of the things that I'd like to do today to help assuage the doubts that you may have in the back of your mind, what if we're wrong, is to actually flip the script a little bit. Because we have been meeting the haters on their own terms. We've been approaching them at their interpretations of our beloved scripture and debunking their bad readings. But we have a lot of other components to this Bible that can buoy us, that can give us strength and encouragement. And so I want to just run you through some of the gayest parts of the Bible. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, the Bible is very gay. And one of the reasons that we don't hear about this or know about this has a lot to do with who historically has been allowed to read and interpret and translate these scriptures for us. But as the world is breaking free of its chains in so many ways, queer folks, trans folks, gender non-conforming folks, intersex folks, people of all of the beauty and variety of God's intention for gender and sexuality are coming into spaces where they're able to articulate and understand the word of God from their own experiences. Now, this is not uh, a problem of just straight people, but a lot of us have, um, have some pretty, uh, some lenses that we wear that orient us towards the world in ways that reflect ourselves. So for instance, I move through the world and lots of straight people assume that I'm straight. They assume I'm straight because that's the kind of general, uh, assumption of the world, and they assume I'm straight because it makes them feel better, and they assume I'm straight contrary to lots of different evidence um, because that's, that's the, the inclination. Um, queer people don't tend to assume I'm straight, and queer people often recognize me and my queerness a lot quicker, and, and I think that that's really important because many of us have had similar experiences. Those who share our identity, our experience of moving through the world, are a lot 
uh, quicker to recognize that, that shared affinity. It's sort of that middle school taunt, uh, it takes one to know one. And so I think that when we bring a queer and trans and gender non-conforming lens to the scriptures, we open up and unlock a whole new level of all the beauty that's contained in there that was rendered invisible to those uh, for whom that's not a shared experience, that they just gloss over stuff. Uh, so I want to just run through some of the queerest and gender-bendiest parts of the Bible. A word about gender and sexuality to begin with. One of the things you'll notice here is that there is a lot about um, bending gender expectations as a proxy for queer sexuality. Now, we don't know or assume that just because someone is gender bending, that means that they are uh, queer in their sexuality. But we, we find that those things are really linked a lot, both in... Um, cultural experiences of queerness and in some of the discrimination leveled toward queer people. Because fundamentally, one of the threats of queerness to the status quo is the breaking down of gender norms. So while we can't necessarily know in explicit terms um, how someone might uh, identify their own sexuality, uh, we can know that bending gender norms is a pretty queer thing to do no matter how your sexuality kind of plays out. And so those are really important things we're going to look for in the Bible. Um, and just know that I am not trying to equate gender and sexuality. I know that they are very different. Um, but again, there's some pretty gay, pretty awesome stuff in here, and we miss it when we just assume straightness or kind of shuffle people sideways into um, straight and gender-conforming patterns just because that's our dominant culture. So let's dive in. <coughs> To begin with, um, I'm also just going to say I have only a, uh, an allotted amount of time to talk to you about this, and there's no way that I'm going to get through all of these. So know that whatever I, I'm able to share with you right now is a taste, a taste of just how gay the Bible is, um, which is exciting. So here's a little taster. So in Genesis 25, we have Jacob one of the important ancestors of Israel, um, super uh, foundational to the line, whoop, to the line that will lead um, to Jesus and, and shape the history of, um, of the tradition. Now, Jacob preferred to be at home with his mother in the tent, which is, um, the, is kind of like a female space with, with female role assignments. Um, in, including he enjoyed cooking, um, which was uh, a role that was usually assigned to women, and was called smooth-skinned, which we don't really know necessarily what that means, but he has contrasted specifically with his twin brother Esau, who was hairy, was always sort of out, uh, outdoors, out at the camp, and hunting. And so we see this tension between different performances of gender, uh, and guess who gets uh, the, the family blessing and is elevated as the next patriarch in the family. It is not the traditionally masculine Esau. It's the little swishy Jacob. Now, Jacob then had a son, Joseph. You may know him from the Donny Osmond uh, depiction in Jacob, or no, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, which if that didn't strike you as a little gay, I don't know how to help you. But, uh, but this robe isn't just uh, kind of queer and sparkly in our modern terms. It was also probably a, a very gender-bendy thing at that time. 
So it's called an ornate robe in certain translations. Um, it was called a, uh, it, was, it was supposed to be, you know, these many colors, this really um, elaborate, beautiful garment. And the word for that robe um, that appears on Joseph is this tunic of many colors, um, is seen elsewhere in the scriptures as a garment worn by a woman named Tamar. Now, you may have heard me talk about a different Tamar before. There are a couple of them. They're all great. Um, but this Tamar wore that kind of robe in the Bible. And the Bible quotes it saying, For this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed. So one commenter putting together a couple of gay pieces here says, This is not a rainbow coat. This is essentially a princess costume. And, yeah, his brothers kind of beat up on him for it. He was obviously favored by Jacob. Jacob, who was our first example of somebody who was probably a little gender bendy, had this young child who uh, wanted to dress up like a princess. And so Jacob gifted him this beautiful, ornate, multicolor um, tunic or robe. And, and we have Joseph then um, simultaneously experiencing uh, a, a gender bend as a blessing and gift, and also some consequences of being um, isolated and outcast from his more traditional brothers. Next, kind of historically through the scriptures, chronologically, we have Ruth and Naomi. Now, if you've been around Zao much this last year, you may have heard me talk about Ruth and, Ruth and Naomi. I stand Ruth and Naomi. They're uh, gay icons and... Um, it's pretty clear to me. This is one of the passages that just makes me laugh when straight people read it as straight. Um, and they just talk about how they were like really good friends. But um, the key idea here, and if you want to go back and listen to the full, beautiful, holy story of Ruth and Naomi's queer love, head back to our um, It's Complicated series from last spring and there's a whole service on it, um, or we included Ruth in our Advent series, Prepare She the Way. Um, so just a little excerpt here, that Ruth and Naomi clung to each other. That word, to cling or to cleave, is a reference to Genesis, where it says, and a man um, shall leave his father and mother and cling to his lover, um, and it's, it's a reference to the union of flesh with flesh, um, a sexual intimacy that creates a sense of identity and family. And there's this beautiful, these beautiful words that Ruth speaks to Naomi. Um, I'm going to put them on the screen right now. She says, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and even more as well, if even death parts me from you. I have never heard a better and more poetic explanation of you hauling in my life. But these lesbians have love on lock. And, and this passage is so beautiful that it is used often at heterosexual Christian wedding ceremonies because in the right context, even the straights can understand that this is beautiful love, commitment. These are vows. 
And so this passage delights me, and I hope that whether you are queer, straight, um, or somewhere uh, in a process of discovery, that this inspires in you an appreciation for queer love as represented in the scriptures. Now we'll jump to Jonathan and David. Um, similarly, we had a whole series or a whole sermon on them back in the It's Complicated series last spring. Uh, but they are a couple who became one in spirit. The scriptures say that their souls were knit together. This is beautiful Hallmark movie. Is this even real gushing romantic love? But, you know, they were just really good friends. David and Jonathan are a representation of holy queer love in the scriptures. So now we're going to jump to eunuchs. Eunuchs are another place where this um, kind of uh, meshing of, of deviance around sexuality, bodies, uh, gender and gender performance, social roles all kind of comes together. Eunuchs uh, held a really unique place in, in society at that time that's a little different than how we would understand folks now, but they were absolutely folks who were somehow um, minorities in their gender and sexuality and presentation. Um, some of them had um, genitals that were unusual, unusual compared to um, the rest of the population, um, whether that was because they were born that way um, or because they chose to alter their bodies. Um, and, and so a lot of queer and trans people see eunuchs in the Bible and say, hey, there is some kind of affinity here. And we don't know exactly what it is, but it's really cool. So we see eunuchs all over the scriptures. In Isaiah, um, there is a blessing on eunuchs, even though they were considered outsiders in Israel. Um, the, the prophet Isaiah calls out eunuchs specifically and, and names the blessing that the Lord has put on these gender and sexual minorities. Let's read that one together. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And this is such a beautiful passage when we contrast it with the hate of those in the church who wish to cut off gender and sexual minorities, those who wish to further marginalize and outcast people that have not been accepted by a common culture as eunuchs were in that day. But the prophet I Isaiah names the blessing of the Lord. I shall call you more than sons and daughters. You shall not be cut off. Now, Jesus comments about eunuchs too. There are a lot of folks who say that Jesus says nothing about queerness or sexuality or gender um, in these contexts and that that is evidence that it's not a problem. And I get where they're coming from, but I actually think that Jesus did say something about it. Because in Matthew 19, verse 12, Jesus says this, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. I love this so much 
because I think that it honors uh, folks who are intersex, uh, who have been uh, eunuchs from birth. It honors folks who have been through a process culturally and personally, and it, it explicitly says that those who made themselves eunuchs, perhaps um, kind of articulating the, the agency that uh, folks have, especially trans folks have in transition or medical transition or ways that folks will take ownership over bodies to become more fully themselves, that they do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus knows that folks have a hard time with this. Jesus knows that everybody who's not a eunuch uh, has some eunuch baggage. And so he says, let everyone accept this who can. Like, I know you're going to have a hard time with this, but like, work on it, w- says Jesus. And I, I just, I love this because I think that we, we feel like um, Jesus has been silent on this matter when I think that Jesus has actually said some affirming things. Furthermore, the eunuchs <coughs> that we see elsewhere in scripture are often holy and wonderful and contributing in explicitly important ways to the story of the un- unfolding love and miracle of God. So in Acts 8, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Cameron did a full sermon on that one recently, or this past summer. I guess it's been a minute. Um, but it's a beautiful sermon, and I really highly recommend you check that out. Um, who says, you know, what is to keep me from being baptized into the family of God, into the people of Jesus? And the answer is nothing nothing let's do it and so he is baptized the eunuch is baptized by philip and they are together in this moment of of discovery of the spirit of the inbreaking of the spirit into different places that the culture would not have allowed the eunuch would not have been admitted to the temple that day but they were baptized in the name of the most high god by one of the disciples of jesus who himself had a lot of learning to do that day and learned from the eunuch about how to be more faithful. Way back uh, into the Hebrew scriptures in Esther, there was a eunuch in charge of the palace women who helped Esther to become queen for such a time as this. And that eunuch was hugely important to Esther's process. There was a eunuch who saved the life of the prophet Jeremiah, as told in Jeremiah 38. All over the scriptures, there are folks who are bending and breaking and twisting gender and sexual norms who are fully included and celebrated and critical to the life, or t- to the life of the spirit and to the, m- the mission of the gospel in the world. And it's really, really cool. And then finally, we have um, this, uh, I want to show you a piece of art, <laughs> but I wanna, I'll tell you the scripture first. There's something that I totally passed over, um, but was recently made aware of in my own research for this sermon, which is that um, in the Gospels, when Jesus sends his disciples, both in Mark and in Luke, when Jesus sends his disciples to the upper room, um, which is where the Last Supper was held, they don't know where they're going. And so Jesus says, all right, um, I'm going to give you some directions. We'll read from the passage in Mark so you know what I'm talking about. It says, So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of that house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So at this critical moment of 
coming together, the last week of Jesus' life, the communion table that we celebrate every week. The person that Jesus entrusts to lead his disciples where they are going is a man carrying a jar of water. Now, that may not seem like that big of a deal at first glance, but we actually um, are removed from another context, which is that carrying water from a well in a jar was a woman's job. There, there is an explicit um, gender violation in a man doing that work, which maybe is why that man was easier to spot in a crowd. But I want to show you a 19th century French painter's interpretation of this man. Can we put that up on the screen? All right, we got it. And not only do you see um, this man carrying this water hand on hip, uh, maybe a little swish to that walk, we also see some other folks seeing, whispering, scandalized by it. This is a breaking of the rules, and it seems to be um, uh, celebrated enough by Jesus to be included in one of the most important meetings and gatherings in the history of the Christian tradition. And it's so subtle, but it is included. Queer folks are a part of this. Um, queer behavior, gender norm breaking, um, the, the boundaries around uh, sexual and gender norms are, are crumbling if we look at the scriptures with queer eyes. There are a few other pieces that um, are scattered throughout the text assuring us that there are, that the, the boundaries we have as human beings that are cultural really break down in the eyes of God. We have um, in Acts 10, a, a dream that comes to Peter saying, you know, do not make profane what I have made holy, um, which is interpreted in that moment about welcoming Gentiles into the following of Jesus, um, uh, despite all of the cultural expectations that they needed to become Jewish. But the Gentiles are not asked to change who they are in order to be included. And we can extrapolate from that an understanding of queerness as included already, made sacred by God, only made profane by the work of the world. In Galatians and 1 Corinthians, there are these passages from Paul around, um, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and then later saying Jews or Greeks, slave or free, male and female. And it's, it's an articulation that both those identities um, do not, do not, not do not matter, but like, are, they sort of crumble, fall apart, lose their meaning um, in, in contrast to the fullness of the identity of a child of God, and that we bring all of those identities into the body as we are made together to be one spirit. So um, we will wrap there on our biblical whirlwind, uh, but I just want you to get a taste of the fact that there is a lot more in scripture that is affirming of queer and trans and gender non-conforming people than there is that's condemning. And I would argue that more of it is substantive. Like there is more substance in the passages that I have shared with you just now than these little snippets taken out of context and hurled at people for harm. And finally, I wanna share with you one of my favorite poems. Um, I won't share the whole thing, but it's an excerpt from a poem written by Desmond and Mfo Tutu. Um, 
they, they wrote a book uh, called Made for Goodness. And, and dispersed throughout this book is uh, a bunch of poems that they wrote from the perspective of God to humanity. They wrote them as kinds of psalms. And there's something that they wrote that just strikes me as true. And I think that this is important too, that in the midst of our understanding of scripture, that we honor what we know to be true about the person and character of God. And so they have made something explicit, what I th which I think is implicit throughout the scriptures, and they have laid it bare. And I hope that you can receive a word of God from these prophets for a moment. Will you read it with me? I see you striving for perfection, craving my acceptance. I see you bending yourself out of shape to conform to the image that you have of me. Do you imagine that I did not know who you were when I made you, when I knit you together in your mother's womb? Do you think I planted a fig tree and expected roses to bloom? No, child. I sowed what I wanted to reap. There is affirmation in the scriptures that God made each of us who God intended us to be and that it is the world that demands that a fig tree sprout roses. But God wanted figs all along. The scriptures affirm queerness because the scriptures affirm humanity, saying the things that are most essential to you are beautiful and holy and good. And Mpho Tutu, six years after this book came out, she came out. She surrendered her credentials as an Anglican priest uh, to marry her partner and her love. And it should not be this way that the church is so far behind the scriptures which have known us and affirmed us from the very beginning. So take all of that encouragement, friends. Take all of that with you when you encounter this contest of wills between the world and the way it is and the haters. And the intention of God to love all of God's children, including queer and trans individuals. Take with you the scriptures that affirm and support you and all of God's creatures. Now, we still have that lingering question, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? And so I want to bring you back to one more scripture. This one's shorter. It might be something that you could memorize and keep with you in your heart when you are plagued by these kinds of doubts. It is from Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Again, we return to the Romans text that led this conversation that we were not given a spirit to lead us back into fear, but the spirit from above who shows that we have been adopted into God's family. And we cry out, Abba, Abba, parent, father, mother God. And this is what we are called on to do whenever we are afraid. Whenever we worry that we are wrong, whenever we are unsure about whether we have interpreted rightly what the scriptures are calling us to do. Now that is not to say that that God should always aff affirm that we have gotten everything correct. It is to remind us of our relationship to God, that it is not important that we get everything exactly correct so much as it is important that we remember who we are and the love that God has for us, who God is to us, our loving Abba. 
The criteria that Jesus uses to see if we are on track with the Gospels, we see that in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. Did you actually live this out? Did you do for the least of these? Did you care about the vulnerable? That's Jesus' criteria for whether we're on the right track. Someone presses him on this in another part of Scripture in Mark 12, and he says, hey, you want to get it right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you got to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, on this hangs the law and the prophets. All of those other little pieces that you want to quibble about, great, quibble about them. Jesus did it too. Hang out in the temple. Let's argue about it. But know at the end of the day that the function of all of those is to love God and love neighbor as you love yourself. And that that is the criteria that Jesus is, is using to see if we are on the way, on the path. Ultimately, though, as we stumble and scrape our knees and, and move slowly and sometimes backwards, it is our earnest intention and our trust in God that matters more than us getting anything right in particular. So what if we're wrong? What if queerness and gender nonconformity is not God's highest intention for us? Well, we'll be okay. Because God's grace is enough to cover us. God's grace welcomes us into the kingdom. I can guarantee you that some of what we teach, some of what we believe, some of what we do is wrong. God is working on us. It's called sanctification. God is making us holier. We wouldn't need that if we already had it down. But that's okay. That is the point of God's grace. Martin Luther was really keyed into this, partly because he was acutely aware of his own flaws. He knew that he couldn't be perfect, and it tormented him because he had grown up in a religious context that told him he had to. He had to figure out how to be perfect. And he said, that just doesn't square with who God is. No one can be perfect. No one can. And I don't even know which parts I'm getting wrong. When he was ultimately put on trial for his role in the Reformation and in hiding, trying to avoid execution, another priest contacted him and basically said, what if we're wrong? And what if the Catholics are wrong? What, how do we know? How do we keep from sinning? And Luther, Luther's response is famously summed up as, love God and sin boldly. Now, he doesn't mean do the things that you know are wrong. He means do the things that you believe are right. Do it with boldness and with courage and trust that that is good enough and that the mistakes are going to be embedded in that and that that's okay because God's grace covers it. It's such a profound sentiment that I want to leave you today with this last piece from Luther's very own letter. Here's what it says. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, in the, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. However, says Peter, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. God will get it right for us, with us, through us someday. And in the meantime, we do our best. And we, we do it boldly 
we be holy with boldness and we sin with boldness because we are eagerly and earnestly pursuing the kingdom of God. So what if we're wrong? Well, God's got us and it's going to be okay. Pursue the fullness of your understanding of who you are and the, the self that you have discovered in concert with the Holy Spirit who breathes and lives in you. Find yourselves in the stories of the scriptures. Affirm the people you love and the ways that you see God at work in them. Do it boldly and know that somewhere in there there's going to be sin. And God's got it covered because God's grace is enough to love us into freedom. Amen. <laughs>